Good morning. Uh, so this lesson is going to be very complementary to the last one. Um, so we talked about the nature of some of the victories that God had given to Israel uh, before they ended up going into Canaan and how those victories teach us lessons about God's power and how he, he is able to oftentimes do much more than what we give him credit for and that the battles that we face, the issue isn't that God cannot provide what we need or that God cannot strengthen us. It's, it's a matter of dependence and faith. And so on that note, I wanted to talk this morning um, in connection with that, giving it a little more um, layer and looking at a few more lessons on that, the fierce loyalty of David's three. And we're going to be mainly just sticking in the section we read in the scripture reading. But to start, we're going to start with Ephesians chapter 1. And I was debating whether to do this at the beginning or the, less, or the end of the lesson, where to kind of tie in the importance of how we can relate um, to the mighty men. But I thought it might be more helpful maybe introduce that, that way we have that on our minds, and then we can kind of refer back to that through the lesson. So we'll get to 2 Samuel 23, but for now, um, we'll turn to Ephesians. And I know I've got Hebrews on the board. It's not to have you turn there. Um, more just as a reference. that uh, Hebrews mentions that what these mighty men did, these were acts of faith. And faith just ends up becoming this transcendent quality that no matter what time someone may be living in or no matter the form that may have taken that faith, Whatever happens by faith really becomes relatable in the way it illustrates lessons that we need to equip our faith. So again, Hebrews 11.34 says that these men by faith became mighty in war and put armies to flight. So as, as was said, although our faith takes a different form, you know, we're not fighting great physical battles, we're not you know, destroying God's physical enemies in the way that the mighty men did, but these examples, they illustrate principles, lessons of the strength that God does give to believers. So with Ephesians 1, I want to read uh, some sections that deal with God's power in Ephesians. And I want to start with Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and just focus on how critical it is that we really understand that knowing the greatness of God's power toward us is a vital aspect to our relationship with God and our faith. So Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, I'm going to read um, Paul's prayer here. Ephesians 1, 15 through 23. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which, exi- which, which exists among you, and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So back in verse 18, 
He's praying that the eyes of the hearts here of the Ephesians would be enlightened to know something. And if you're praying that someone knows something, just a really simple implication of that is that that's something that could be unknown or something that we could fail to know or fail to understand, right? So we could be failing to understand really the surpassing greatness of God's power toward us. And I think just the nature of the conflicts we face in the world, the nature of the world around us, struggles that we face on personal levels, it can be very easy to overlook that there's so much to know about, again, notice the language, the surpassing greatness in verse 19, the surpassing greatness of God's power. And when you think about the word surpassing, surpassing implies that it goes beyond other powers, right? We see that implied when in verse 20, that Jesus, when he was risen from the dead, was in verse 21, raised above all rule, authority, and power. So no matter what powers we may face, no matter what obstacles we may face, God's power surpasses those things. So we need to know God's power toward us who believe. Another thing in relation to the lesson this morning, the mighty men of David really became like new Davids. In 2 Samuel 21, where we're not going to read, These are men who also ended up slaying giants, just like David did. These are men who, in the section we will be looking at again, these are men who accomplished incredible military feats, just like David did. It's almost like the idea that the power that was manifested through David, the men closest to him imitated those same things, and God made them just like David, so that they could fight and win the same kind of battles. So in verse 20, this is brought about in Christ to be made available to us that we can fight the same battles that Jesus fought, that we can win the same battles that Jesus won. Chapter 3, 20 and 21, we looked at this in the Bible class on Wednesday. Um, I just want to look at this again in chapter 3. And this is again in relation to a prayer where Paul is praying for the Ephesians. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so I think in verse 20 what's being implied and what I think Paul is implying about himself no matter where we may be we will always be underestimating God's power toward us. And so we always need to be working on expanding our understanding of just how powerful God is, not just in his own person, but also notice in verse 20 at the end of the verse, the power that works where? Within us. And so even though we may know our weaknesses and be very familiar with ways we fail, our sins, our struggles, our trials, we always need to be mindful that God's power is far more abundantly beyond not only all that we ask, but even all that we can even think or imagine, right? So again, we, just, we need to be consistently challenged to give more credit to the power of God toward us and within us. And then we have Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 11, where we're told to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. So we're going to be looking at David's men standing firm and God giving them strength according to his own might to fulfill his purpose, to destroy the enemies of his people. But again, in verse 10, we're told to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And in verse 12, what we're told is this is like a military struggle. And Paul will oftentimes refer to people like Timothy and those who would work with them as fellow soldiers. So even though we're not using like physical weapons, we're not engaged in a physical battle, there is still an aspect of conflict and even military conflict and battle that in some sense we are engaged in. It may not be in verse 12, flesh and blood, but it is against powers, forces, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this requires that we take up the armor of God so that we can stand firm and resist in the evil day. So all of this is mainly just to introduce relatable anchoring points that we can refer back to, just to kind of have some clarity that when we're reading about David's mighty men, it's not just that these are amazing stories or cool things that have happened in Israel's history, but there's aspects to their faith that can help us understand and give more credit more value to these aspects of our faith as well. So working back into 2 Samuel, and you can turn in your Bibles there, I just want to give a little bit of um, maybe visual understanding of the time frame that the mighty men were living in and the time frame referred to. So this is a map ideally of what Israel should have looked like. And... It can be kind of confusing, so I've just kind of highlighted what is Israel's territory there. Um, On the north would be the Syrians, the east would be the Moabites, southeast the Edomites, but everything in the highlighted area is the territory of Israel, ideally the territory God had given them, and then everything underneath the dotted line is the entirety of Judah and also Simeon dwelling within Judah, but mainly Judah. The time frame that we're going to be reading about when these victories were won was the days of Saul and the territory of Israel in Saul's day was heavily diminished. And even in fact, what we'll see later, the fact that the Philistine garrison was in Bethlehem, my opinion is that this map here actually doesn't show how diminished the territory actually got because I'll show Bethlehem is actually in the highlighted area that this map has. But I'd say this is a pretty close representation that you go from this, to this. And mind you, this is God's land. This isn't just about the people having a place to live. This is land God gave to his people for it to be their inheritance forever. And enemies of Israel that were supposed to be driven away from the land and annihilated are diminishing their territory, driving them back. The Philistines have taken control of the western side of Israel under Saul's rule. And Judah is... It's like a little kindling firebrand compared to the the flame that it once was. And so that sets the context for the feats that these mighty men faced in what would be very discouraging times where you're not seeing many men of great courage besides David, who, like was mentioned earlier, really led the way of demonstrating power that God would give to people who would just take up faith and have courage. So 2 Samuel 23 You'll notice in verse 8, at least the New American Standard, 
These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. These would be like David's Green Berets, like special forces. There were hundreds of thousands of military men in Israel in David's day, even though the territory had been greatly diminished. But among those hundreds of thousands, there were 30. And these 30 were David's most elite military force. And of this 30, there was Joshabeam, and that's not his name as it's said in verse 8, but in the Chronicles account, First Chronicles 11, that's, his name is easier to pronounce in First Chronicles. So we're going with Jashabim, uh, Eliezer, and Shema. These are set apart as the three. So among the 30, there were two ranks of three. We're not going to be talking about the second rank. Um, but the first rank of the three, we get these great victories that seem to be the reason why they particularly were appointed as the three mightiest of David's elite force. So let's reread 8 through 12 and uh, reread about these three particular men. Um, I just noticed in the next slide. So Adino is in the New American Standard. Um, I fixed it to Jashobiam. Adino is Jashobiam. The New American Standard calls him also Adino, but that's like a new, yeah, anyway, it's a translation thing. Uh, 8 through 12. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jasheb Bashebeth, Atakamanite, chief of the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle and the men of Israel had withdrawn. He arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to his sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shema, the son of Agi, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils and the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it, and struck the Philistines and the Lord brought about a great victory. So again, like Hebrews 11 says, these were things done by faith. And then what's emphasized here similarly, verse 10 and verse 12, these were victories that God was ultimately responsible for. So we're going to be thinking about what these men were examples of in their resolve in the Lord. And Adino, that would be Jashabeam. He is an example of courageous resolve in the Lord. Leviticus 26 says something that I think is a helpful reference for his victory here. In Leviticus 26, it says, you will chase your enemies. They will fall before you by the sword. Five of you will chase a hundred. Um, so kind of like, think about the math. God promised five of you will chase a hundred. And this is, by the way, Leviticus 26. If the people are obedient, serving him faithfully, these will be ways that God will bless them as a result of their obedience. And he says, five of you will chase a hundred. Jashabim killed 800 men, not in his term of warfare, in one single battle. I was thinking about putting a picture of some kind to represent like what 800 to 1 looks like, but just kind of picture in your mind how overwhelming that would be. Just even like the visual, you're one man and in front of you stand 800 men. 
And to not be intimidated by the number, but to trust in the Lord that you are defending God's people, you are defending God's territory, you know what he's promised, and all you can do is put that promise to the test, go for broke with it. And what Adino Jashabim demonstrates is God will go above and beyond what he promises. So God promised five one hundred, and here God goes way beyond this fundamental promise, and one man overtakes eight hundred of God's enemies. Why? Because these were God's enemies, the enemies of David. Because Jashabim was defending David and the people of Israel. Jashabim was taking a stand to inspire others to know that God is faithful and will do the things that he's promised if we'll just put our trust in his word. So with Adina, we see in a courageous resolve. With Eleazar, we see a relentless resolve. So he was with David in verse 9 and 10 when the Philistines were gathering to battle. And what had the men of Israel done? Just kind of think about the scene, right? Imagine uh, Eleazar standing with David. They're facing the Philistines. And Israelites in mass are running the other way. And the way I kind of picture this in my head is I imagine David and Eleazar not breaking focus. They're, they're just looking forward. Everybody is fleeing behind them. And if somebody else is with them, it's not stated. So I, I imagine it's David and it's Eleazar, these two men by themselves, willing to fight with the Philistines, even though it could be very discouraging that everybody else has fled from the battle. And then at the end of verse 10, or rather the beginning of verse 10, did God strengthen Eleazar by making him like Superman? Like he didn't get tired and like his muscles buffed out and, you know, like I was talking to Jason about this yesterday and Jason said he wasn't like Thor, right? So he throws his sword and like it just kills everybody and comes back to him or something like that. He still got tired, right? His hand was so weary. The way I pictured it is it's like his hand was shaking and he couldn't, his mind was saying, let go. And his hand just, it couldn't let go because it was so weary and he had concentrated for so long on maintaining his grip and not dropping his weapon. So Eleazar is an example of having a relentless resolve. And I think, again, we see that with the fatigue he faced. And so God didn't, you know, take away the fatigue. God helped him through his focus through the fatigue. Think about Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. How fatigued Jesus got in the wilderness. And it says he became hungry. So when Jesus was wandering through the wilderness, did God just take away his hunger, take away his thirst, take away the pain? No. God strengthened Jesus' faith through the fatigue. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. When before beginning to pray in the garden, Jesus told his disciples that his soul was in anguish even unto death. Did God take away the fatigue? Or did God strengthen him through it? Right? One of my favorite parts of that passage is the way it reads in the New King James. In Luke's gospel, it says, while he was praying, an angel appeared to him, strengthening him, and so he prayed more fervently. And I, I love that image where Jesus is just giving it everything he's got. He's fatigued, he's weary, and he's doing everything he can to find strength in the Lord. I don't know if you've dealt with this, but I think what's inevitable in our relationship with God, 
there are times where either because of sin and how enslaving it can be, how tempting it can be, or even because of positively trying to apply something, trying to actively do, do something, that it can be so difficult and holding on can be so difficult. Where you're actually unable to concentrate on anything except holding on to hope through prayer. You know, you can't, you can't do anything, you can't even hold a conversation that it's so wearying to either resist the force of temptation or to do what God has called you to do, whatever it may be, that the only thing you have the energy to do is simply to pray and just hold God accountable to the promises he's given and to stand your ground. So again, Eleazar, why was he so relentless? He's defending God's people. He's defending the inheritance that God has given his people. He's standing for the cause of what God has done and defending what God has done, right? Then we have Shema, who's an example of jealous resolve in the Lord. So he again took his stand in a plot of land, and it seems implied in verse 11 that he stood alone and that there wasn't anybody with him. And you notice again, similarly, the people fled from the Philistines. So I imagine, again, just kind of thinking about the scene that you have... um, Shema standing in the plot of ground. It's a field, so I imagine that there's some things kind of up waist high. The Philistines are coming closer and closer, and whatever people were with him, where they're all gone now. And again, I imagine him with a focused resolve. He's facing the Philistines and not even paying attention to the fact that everybody's run away. And the battle begins, and he slaughters all of the Philistines who have come to take the field of lentils. Now, I want you to think, this being an example of jealous resolve, Lentils are like uh, bean-type things, right? Why would a field of lentils be worth fighting for, risking your life for? Who cares of a field of lentils? Why not just retreat with everyone else, live to fight another day, gather more forces, be more strategic? I mean, what sense does this make to, to die for a field of beans? That's God's field. Israel had fought great battles in the past to win that territory. And in the days of Saul, you know, the Israelites have lost just about enough of their land. And I think people like Shema were just about done letting people who had no right to that land take it not just from God's people, but from God himself. So what does a field of lentils matter? everything because that's that's God's territory and I think if we thought of temptation more in that way or again not just temptation to sin but proactively obeying God that Ephesians the prayer is that we would know the glory of his inheritance in the saints that everything that God has commanded is because there is territory in a sense that Christ has won for us and the idea is we need to fight to maintain that territory and to win more of that territory, to love, to serve, to be holy, to be holy in more ways, to gain greater wisdom. This is all a part of the territory, the inheritance that Christ has already won for us. And if we see temptation that Satan is trying to take away, things that Christ suffered and bled and agonized over, There was a battle fought 
to win territory for us. A great and incredible, eternally changing battle that was fought. That we could have land, in a sense, to fight for. And what God is calling us to do is to value that inheritance. And to value it enough, like Ephesians 6, to stand firm in the Lord and to be strong in the strength of his might because God is willing to support those whose heart is his to defend that territory. So with Dina, we see just the courage to not be intimidated by overwhelming odds when God's people, God's land is on the line. Eleazar is an example of being relentless that no matter how tired he got, he's going to continue to fight until the victory is won because that, that is what God is able to do. And Shema is an example of jealous resolve that whatever insignificance it may seem, it's God's enemies against God's people trying to take God's land, and that is unthinkable, right? So let's go into the last part here with the loyalty of the three. So in verse 13, it says, then three of the 30. My opinion, this story is here and in First Chronicles, and in both places, it is immediately after these men, and then other men are mentioned afterward. So my opinion is that the, the three are these same three men, and this is now an account of them together um, and something they did together. So let's read it again, and then we'll kind of go back and look some more at what I have on the board here. Verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping, camping in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. I think again if we understand some of the context here, it heightens the lessons we're able to gain from it. The Philistine garrison was stationed in Bethlehem. There's a couple of really important things about that. A garrison is a fortified location that is militarily enforced where weapons are kept that it's intended, we are intending to keep this spot and we will defend it and it is fortified. And where was that garrison? In Bethlehem. Do you remember what's significant about Bethlehem to David? That's where he's from. He grew up in Bethlehem. That's where his family's from. And what's shocking about this, the arrow on the right there is pointing to Bethlehem. And so for them to have a garrison in Bethlehem, that is deep into Israelite territory. Deep. For the Philistines to have set up a garrison, not just a troop, a garrison in Bethlehem, means that they had invaded Judah so far that they had taken its territory to, the, to nearly the point of having all of Judah in their control. So this would have been an incredibly 
discouraging and hard time. I think this would be 1 Samuel 22. It mentions David was in the cave of Adullam during Saul's reign and his family came to him. And I think this helps us understand, well, why does his family come to him? The Philistines have taken Bethlehem. His family can't be in Bethlehem anymore. So his family comes, the mighty men come, and they fortify the cave of Adullam into a stronghold. Um, it's, it's a bad time. So in this context, and we'll, we'll get to the three going through the camp of the Philistines, but David passively asks for water from the well. So that, that's one thing, right? So they've got to go to a garrison of their enemies that they've won, which means they have driven out Israelites from there. They intend to keep it, to defend it. Where's the well? It's by the gate. There's a person of significance who was a mighty man, one of the 30 even. He died by a gate. Uriah the Hittite. David sent him to a gate. Joab, under David's direction, sent him to a gate. He was killed at the gate. And Joab knew that maybe that'll make David upset, that military choice, because there are archers at the gate. Did you not know they would shoot at you from the wall? So if there's a well by the gate, <laughs> that means there's going to be archers. That means that it's going to be right in front of the spot where they can come right out and get you. If there is a foolish place to go to draw water, it's by the gate. So imagine the scene again, right? So verse 13, I think it's implied by the end of this, David didn't intend for anybody to go get this water. David didn't mean for his men to just go out there and risk their lives. You know, sometimes people say things passively. And speaking of it being said that he's longing for water from the well of Bethlehem, do people long for things like this when they're satisfied and they already have enough? I get the impression that when David is in the cave of Adullam, it's not as if he's well supplied. There's not just water to drink in abundance, right? So, man, if someone would just go get me this water in Bethlehem. So I imagine they hear David saying this. And these three men, I imagine that they don't say anything, but they just look at each other in silent agreement. No words, no having to agree to it, no talking out a battle plan. I imagine they silently look at each other, they silently agree, they gather their equipment, they don't tell David, and they go. And they break through the troop of the Philistines. If you look at verse um, 16, they had to break through the camp of the Philistines. What's, what's implied by the fact that they had to break through? Were they sneaking at night? Was this like, you know, trying to disguise themselves as Philistines and maybe they can just quickly in, out, nobody's going to notice, no harm done. No, it's hard not to picture this like a movie scene, you know, where they're, they're going through a series of Philistines and they're having to defend themselves. They're having to attack people. They are having to break through defenses. I don't know if that involved jumping over walls you know, working their way through gates that were barred and breaking them open. But there was resistance and they had to fight through the resistance and they got to the gate. Now, I want you to imagine drawing water from a well. Does that happen as quickly as turning on a faucet? You imagine these three men having to 
quickly go like this, and I don't know if they've got their bows and they're trying to fend off everybody who's shooting at them or the Philistines coming at them. But the way I picture this is you've got one man with the bucket and two others defending him. And that one person is going as fast as he can go to get this water, and then as they're being attacked, eventually he gets it up, and they're having to carefully run back to David in the midst of battle and keep this water in this bucket and protect it at the cost of their lives, as David will acknowledge. And they bring it back to David. Now imagine this. David's still in the cave of Adullam. These men come back. I imagine they've got smiles on their faces. And they hand him a bucket. And I imagine David has no idea what's going on. He says, where'd this come from? And they say, you asked for water from the well at Bethlehem by the gate. Imagine David's shock and horror when he realizes what his men had done for him. And you imagine the shock of his men as David turns it over and pours it all out on the ground without taking a sip. As much as they respected David, I imagine their respect for him went through the roof after this. Why wouldn't he drink it? He poured it out to the Lord. This water was so precious. David recognized these men, they risked their lives for this. this if I drank this, it'd be like drinking blood, their blood. And so far be it from me that I should do this, shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives. Did David respect the lives of his men? And you imagine as David says that, just the greater reverence they would have for their king. I think something that's obvious here, David did not just have their allegiance he had their hearts. Do you think David was more careful with his words after this? <laughs> you know, it's like, if I, if I say something, I've got men around me that are going to risk their lives. If I even <laughs> passively express a wish for water, they're going to risk their lives to get it for me. I imagine David learned something about the loyalty he had won from these men from this day forward. And so David, again, it's not just that he had their allegiance. There were, there were many people who were allegiance or loyal to David, many, beyond, beyond the 30. But there was something special about these three. He had their whole heart. They didn't just respect David as a military man. They loved him. But Why? because of who David was, what he represented, what he stood for. I imagine there were a lot of people who were very tired during the reign of Saul, were very tired of the way that he led the people. They were very tired of his cowardice. 
seeing that he had won a couple battles, from that point forward became arrogant. And I imagine there were many people, when they saw David kill Goliath, they knew there was a new king in Israel. And it wasn't just Jonathan when he saw David, who gave him his armor, his weapons, loved David as his own soul. I imagine to be near David, to, to see his attitude, his decisions, his love for God, the way he would meditate on the word of the Lord, when he would forfeit even cutting the edge of Saul's robe and how that would convict him. Everything David did, I imagine it only elicited greater respect. And the depth of their loyalty to David, how far it went, the reason why this account is so special, it's not just, it's not just what they did. It's why they did it. You know, they didn't just have this idea of themselves, and it's, it's, it's not even that David told them to do this. He didn't say like, hey, okay, competition. Whoever gets the water from the well at Bethlehem, he's going to be my three first-rank elite troops. So have at it. <laughs> no, he's, he's just talking. That's it. It's just a longing. That's all it is. No expectation that anyone's going to do anything, right? And so their loyalty is evident. And the fact that their loyalty was not just an allegiance, but that they loved David, that they respected David, that he had their hearts, how they treated his word revealed the depth of their loyalty. How they treated his word. It reveals their loyalty. And so I just want to end the lesson thinking about this. What is David compared to Jesus? What is David compared to Jesus? Jesus is a greater king who's won greater battles. He stands for a greater cause. David also stood for the cause of God. But wow, it's, it's just incomparable to what Jesus stood for and, wow, how he fulfilled God's purpose. It, it, the, the level of courage and fulfillment and depth is so much greater in Jesus. And you look at people like the Apostle Paul and just the, the fierce loyalty that the Apostle Paul had for Jesus the example that Paul was and Peter and the apostles, it, it transcends what the mighty men did for David. Jesus transcends who, G, who David was in every way. And I want you to read something that we, we sang earlier in 189. Just the, the fourth verse of song 189, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. This, this is one of my favorite songs just because I just think it's, it's so fitting to meditate on these things in song when we, we really think about Jesus and the Lord's Supper. And I want, I want to remember verse 4 of this song. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that 
were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus is a king who can inspire greater loyalty, who can win our hearts in such a grander way. And that should equip us to fight. And even as strange as it can sound, to have a fierceness to fight for Jesus, to fight for his purpose, to fight for the kingdom. And like Paul prayed even during the Lord's Supper, you know, seeking for the kingdom to spread here on earth, Jesus is still a king fighting and conquering. And he has men and women who are his elite forces in the world. And so it's not just that we're trying to grow in applying moral instruction, but that we are trying to embrace the power that God gives us to do his will in ways that if we don't love him and if we don't admire him for the king that he is, there is a length of loyalty that will never be attained if we don't learn to see Jesus the way these three men saw David. And that's the lesson for this morning. If you're here this morning and um, either the lesson has convicted you on something particular or that you see that in some way you need encouragement from the saints in your relationship with God, um, This time is a very special time when we're all together where we reserve a period at the end of our assembly for any needs to be made known. And so if there is any need, please bring it forward while we stand and sing the invitation song.